It's been a while since you put me on the shelf. I know you've been distracted by somebody else. It's been a while, but that's all right, you see. And I'll be right here waiting when you want to play again with me. Hello everyone and welcome to the latest episode of Cult of the Old. I'm Ian McAllister and I'm joined as ever by my most excellent co-hosts, Nate Owens and Matt Thrower. How are you doing, chaps? I'm good, thanks very much. You've just come back from a con, sir? I have indeed just back from Tabletop Scotland, and yeah, you really need to get up to Scotland, Matt. We were talking just before we came on that you have never been to Scotland, and that is something that we yeah. need to uh, change, certainly, by making My you love. come to a board game convention and sit inside and not see Scotland. Yeah, that's how we solve that problem. Just for the record, I've never been to Scotland either. So I'm assuming it's a standing invitation for me, just I have to come a lot farther. Oh, yeah, absolutely. But uh, until that's happened, that's the end of this cast. Anyway, each episode, I and my fellow hosts are going to dive into the tabletop gaming past. We're going to turn back the release schedule at least 10 years to look at games that were setting tables ablaze in the dim and distant past of a whole decade ago. Over the course of this season, the games we are going to cover will still be available to play, either because they have become evergreen titles, that is that they are always available at retail, or they are accessible through illegal digital means like Board Game Arena. And what are we looking at this cast? Well, it's the giant kaiju of dice rolling games, King of Tokyo. So every cast we do a one minute breakdown of the game, and this episode is going to be me doing this for King of Tokyo. So, King of Tokyo is a Yahtzee-style game where what you'll be doing on each turn is you're going to be rolling dice to take on big monsters. You are aiming to be the King of Tokyo, you're a big kaiju, and every turn you roll six dice and you choose some of those dice to uh, retain, and then you can roll them again and again, you get a couple of re-rolls. And what you're looking for is either to like hit the monsters that are in Tokyo or outside of Tokyo, we'll get to that, or for combinations of numbers to get you victory points, or maybe hearts for healing, or energy to buy cards. Now you start outside of Tokyo, and as you punch your way into Tokyo, you'll end up inside it, which gets you victory points. And every turn you start your turn inside Tokyo, you'll get some more victory points. The energy you can get from dice, you can use to buy cards and level your monster up, so to speak, getting all sorts of weird and wonderful powers. Uh, gaining victory points and things like that from some of them. And over the course of the game, you're either looking to have the most victory points, you're looking to have 20 victory points, or become the last monster standing. I absolutely love the way that you said we'll come back to that in a 60-second countdown rules explanation. Yeah. I know. He doesn't even care. He's like, yeah, I got, I got time to spare to yeah. tell people that we're going to come back to that. Originally released in 2011, the designer was none other than Richard Garfield, designer of Magic the Gathering, Android Netrunner, Robo Rally, amongst many other titles. It was published by Yellow, their first original title, as the company had previously only done reprints, with art by, and there's quite a few here, I'll just go through them quickly, Gabriel Butek, Romain Cachet, Paul Maffeon, Iger Pelusian, Benjamin Reynal, Jean-Baptiste Renaud, Jonathan Silvestri, Reggie Torres, and Anthony Wolf. Apologies I've got any of those pronounced slightly wrong. Its major award was the Ast d'Or in 2012, which is the French equivalent of the Spiel des Yara. Mm-hmm. 
how did you first come across King of Tokyo, gents? I mean, for, for me, it was one of those early games that I, I sort of came across when I first got into the hobby. Uh, probably, I mean, I had like, had, had like Settlers of Catan, but King of Tokyo was the first game that really sort of blew me away with its sort of production and the sort of look of the thing. And it's sort of just this big, attractive game with chunky dice and massive, colorful standees. It just looks the par. How, how did you two come across it? I remember uh, in 2011, I was... I hadn't seen it in the wild yet, but I had uh, a lot of friends online who'd played it. And I especially remember hearing about it from Bruno Faduti, who at the time had his ideal game library, which is now you have to go through the Wayback machine to be able to read that now. But um, he was talking about having played it at one of the French gathering of designers, and he was really effusive about it, really liked it a lot. And I didn't get to play it until uh, the next year around... April or May of 2012. And I remember the setting I played it at was at Geekway to the West in St. Louis, Missouri. And I had been there, oh, probably four or five days at that point. It would be a long, hard con. You know, everyone's tired. You've been learning heavy games. I think that was the same uh, day that I learned Mage Knight uh, that morning. <laughs> so I sat down for like four hours to, to, you know, do battle with that game. And it was by the end, I was leaving in a couple hours and uh, some people who were kind of all there together invited me, hey, we need a six. Do you want to come in and, and join us for this game? I'm like, yeah, sure. Uh, we played one game. We had a great time. Uh, we had a, some time left. We played another game, had a great time. And then we played a third game of it, which is unprecedented. I've never played three games in a row of anything in my life. And it was one of those things where as, as the, we were all a little punchy and a little tired, but after a, a week, a weekend of learning really dense, heavy gamer games, it was exactly the thing we needed because there was a lot of shouting, a lot of trash talking, a lot of groans when the dice wouldn't go right or, you know, all this kind of stuff. It was a, the perfect first impression for this game. And so <laughs> I got back and I talked to my wife and said, honey, we got to get this game. And it was kind of hard to get for a while, but we'll talk about that a little later. I seem to remember you also saying you had said the same thing to your wife with Agricola uh, in the last episode. Someday, I, 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 someday we'll talk you. about a game. <laughs> we'll talk about a game where I don't, I, I don't do that to my wife. I promise. She, she plays this one. She doesn't play Agricola. So, uh, women of taste. <laughs> King of Tokyo passed me by to start with. Just as I, I, I missed it. It flew under my radar somehow. I just kind of wasn't even aware of it even when it was taking off and becoming fairly popular. And uh, then one day I walked into uh, a single one-day convention, uh, not in Scotland, I might add. And uh, I think I was the last person there. It wasn't a very big uh, event. Uh, and the only table that was open was six people playing King of Tokyo. And they said, come and join us, come and join us, even though the game doesn't take seven. You know, they just, they just threw me in there at the deep end. And uh, the only monster left was the rabbit, Cyber Bunny. And I remember thinking... God, I've really drawn the short straw here. You've got Cthulhu and you've got mechanical dragons and here am I with a, with a robotic rabbit until halfway through the game I noticed that in the window, in the tiny window of that giant robot, there is an even tinier rabbit at the controls. From that moment on, the Cyber Bunny has always been my favourite and only option in King of Tokyo. That's just glorious, a glorious detail. I love that. Um, and even though it's not a game that you should play with seven people, and I loved it. I just loved it. I had a wonderful time with it. Uh, and it was so enjoyable, so intuitive and so exciting. And the fact that I had to wait 
probably six other players to finish their turns before mine come round, just added to the anticipation, really. I had a, despite the, the delay, despite the downtime, uh, it was just a joy. Yeah, I mean, I played it with like six, seven people fine, and, and yeah, I really enjoyed it, just because it, it does zip around. Let's talk a little bit about sort of influences on the game. What, what do we think sort of like prompted Garfield to like design a game like this? Because it's very different to previous games. I mean, I, I guess in terms of the sort of chaos of King of Tokyo, it's closest to Robo Rally, but it is quite a different prospect to a lot of his earlier games, especially for something like Magic or Netrunner. Yeah, I mean, I think the feeling of playing Robo Rally is quite close to the feeling of playing King of Tokyo, but mechanically, obviously, they're very different beasts. But the the seed is there that it gives you a, an idea that Garfield is a fan of this kind of chaotic, free-for-all, enjoy-the-entropy kind of game, which you wouldn't necessarily guess from his collectible card game designs, I don't think. But, the, you know, the the taste of it the sense of it is is definitely there between the two games um when it comes to magic and netrunner you can i think maybe see an association between his work there and the deck of cards in king of tokyo but you know that's probably too much of a making too much of a comparison because games that have decks of cards with variable powers on them are not exactly rare no, that's true. I mean, certainly there's some some of his experience there helped sort of shape that deck for sure. And there's some there's some really interesting ideas in, in the King of Tokyo deck. But yeah, you're right. It's it would be too easy to just draw almost needless comparisons, I guess. Yeah, it's um with the enormous shadow that Magic the Gathering casts, it would be a little uh, you know, it's there's probably millions of games now <laughs> that have cards with variable <laughs> powers. It it seems a little I mean it's more it's more justified here than in other games because it's the same designer. Uh, but I agree with you, Matt. This is even though the way it gets there is totally different. Uh, this does have that same kind of wild atmosphere that Robo Rally has. The game, the personality of the games is totally different. Robo Rally is programmed movement, which is my one of my particular kryptonites in gaming. I I am <laughs> I just have no skill for it at all. But this is much more you know, risk-taking, dice-chucking kind of thing. I, I do think, oh boy, I, I wish I had a citation for this, but just some of the accounts I've read of very early days of Magic, like 93, 94, when people were just getting into it before it was nearly the organized lifestyle that it is now. I get the impression that it was a lot more freewheeling. The cards were a lot more wonky and you know that's that's when they have the with the the power nine right or from that first edition of magic and that's you know you, you can kind of see some of the seeds of chaos and when you know that richard garfield also borrowed liberally from uh you know he was really influenced by games like cosmic encounter and Wizbor. i think Wizbor. i know cosmic encounter and you can see that same kind of thing the variable powers are kind of seeping into that as well so there's I, I you can draw a line from uh certainly from Magic the Gathering, but probably not Magic the Gathering as people play it now. Yeah, there's cer certainly um I mean I I've never really been a big magic player, but I was a fairly I, I was a fairly big Android Netrunner uh, player when FFG bought it and we released it. And I had some experience with the original game as well. And there's certainly some of the sort of cheekiness and sort of wackiness in Netrunner that sort of seeps through into in, into King of Tokyo later on. 
Do you think there are any other games outside of King of uh, outside of Garfield's own work that sort of influenced him and in, into making King of Tokyo? You you can't escape the feeling that it's Yahtzee. Um, yeah. And oh yeah, yeah, for sure. I can remember when I when I first played it, thinking that well, you know, this is Yahtzee. We're picking up the dice, keeping the ones we want, and throwing them again. But I was particularly struck by the fact that. It is the first game, the first hobby game that I had played, probably since Yahtzee, uh, that used that mechanic. And I remember thinking, why hasn't this been used more? Why don't we see this more often in games? It's a good mechanic. Keep the dice you want, you know, pass on the rest. And this kind of kept that flame alive, I think. That is a concept that might otherwise have kind of just on away in the same way that roll and move has um we won't have a big discussion about roll and move but it has its place and it can be useful in in some design scenarios in some mechanical situations but i think we've got um the the yahtzee thing is even rarer uh and i think we've we've got king of tokyo part to thank for keeping it in the gaming consciousness yeah yahtzee is the obvious influence and i i think there's um someone smarter than me has pointed this out and i can't remember who it was but one of the things I, I think really helps games really have, you know, when lightning strikes and a game really becomes not just a success, but like the kind of thing you can buy at a, at a mainstream department store. When that happens, I think a lot of times you'll find that it's a design that's taken on a flavor of a game people already know. And I think you see that a little bit here with... Uh, you see that with, well, for example, in other games, and Ticket to Ride has a lot of rummy in it. It's basically a rummy variant. And, you know, everyone's grandma knows sure. how to play rummy. Uh, and everyone's grandma knows how to play Yahtzee. And I, in fact, when I introduced this game to someone, I actually, to people, I actually introduced it as Monster Yahtzee. Because that's the closest thing I can, the best way to describe it. One game, Matt, I think you might have forgotten that is not, a, not nearly as influential, but did have the three roles uh mechanic is roll through the ages the game that came out in 2008 2009 somewhere around there and has a little little civilization building game it's basically roll and write except that game has little pegboards that you track your information on it's a very nice little production little classy game and it, it was a success i think it's still in print but it was not nearly the success that King of Tokyo was. And it's a really different kind of game. It's a lot more staid and a lot more, you know, just kind of peaceful and laid back. King of Tokyo is a certain raucous streak to it. I, I, I have, I've forgotten it because I haven't played it. Never played Rock. Oh. <laughs> um, I, I remember seeing the boards, but I've never played it myself either. I think it's worth mentioning that Yahtzee, of course, actually goes back to a much older game called Poker Dice. Um, yeah. which, which uh, Yahtzee is essentially, poker dice is a quick thing where you roll and just try and get the best poker hand you can by rerolling the dice, whereas Yahtzee turned it into a whole score sheet thing. But uh, this is a quite an old gaming concept, is, is where I'm going with this. This, this. this is not something that's, that's floated in, but it's interesting how, again, it has largely been bypassed until recently, until very recently with Roll and Write, uh, by, by a lot of mainstream game design. Another game that just occurred to me, and I... I don't know if I'd say this is definitely an influence, but it was kind of an antecedent to King of Tokyo, and that's Dice Town, which is, uh, I think, only a, like a pretty okay game, uh, but uses poker dice. And I only say that it 
is in the same stream probably because that was also a French production uh, designed by French designers. And um, I don't know if that had any impact on King of Tokyo. Richard Garfield's American. So I don't know how much he would have played Dice Town in the lead up to this or if that was even something he did. But that's more of a more of a, again, a kind of a harbinger of the, of dice being used as dice and not something that not, not, not an attempt to control the randomness of the dice, just embracing the wildness and going with it. So uh, there's been a lot of versions of King of Tokyo over the year. Obviously there's the original version that I, I still have, like, as I said earlier, it was on the very early games I bought when I was sort of getting into the modern hobby. And yeah, it's just a, it's a beautiful production. There's a really big chunky dice. There's it's, I'm going to use the word unnecessary here. It's an unnecessarily luxurious production, I think, but it's, it's beautiful in the way they've done it. I really love how indulgent it is. The little energy cubes don't need to be tiny little plastic energy cubes, but they are, and it just adds to the feel of the game. Really nice car, really nice cardstock, and these beautiful standees designed by all these artists, so it just looks fantastic. A little later on, was the, uh, they did get some expansions because it was so, so um, popular. And one of the early expansions was an expansion called Power Up, which changed the game a bit. It introduced decks for each um, monster. And my I don't know about you guys, but my experience with Power Up the first couple of times I played it was that it sort of brought the game to a bit of a halt because everyone's trying to get these power cards, trying to sort of open them up, trying to actually sort of go through these decks and find out what's going on in them. But eventually, once you played it a few with it a few times, that that sort of excitement to see those cards wanes a little they're still useful but they're not sought sought after as much and i quite like it now i quite i play with it quite often with my group but i don't know what you guys think do you think king of tokyo should just remain unadulterated pretty much as it is or did power up actually add something to it i'm not a huge fan of power up Uh, i've got it i don't generally play with it just want to wind back a moment actually and just mention you say about the production values of the original game the very first edition actually came with screen printed dice which wore off really quickly it was a it was a very oh, common complaint. Yeah. i remember that yeah and it's the it was the reprint that got the embossed dice which are much better um and which are a yeah i've got that version do they glow in the dark as well i have a feeling they might glow in the dark i don't know did i make that up i think so should turn my lights off in my office and find out <laughs> yeah. uh, look, we're gonna do a live experiment a live on on stream experiment here <laughs> all right uh, um, but as far as power up concerns, um, I you were saying in the original when we came in here how quick flowing the game is, and anything that interrupts that speed, I think, is to the detriment of of the game. There, there are two problems I got with power up. The, the cards are fine, they're good, but they slow the game down. My bigger issue with power up is that it makes people take more hearts, and that makes the game as a whole last more turns and kind of suck some of the violence out of it, which is, I like the violence. <laughs> I, <laughs> I, enjoy, I enjoy clawing people to death. Uh, and, and yeah, I, I, I just, the fact that it slows the game down, the fact that it makes it less, it's not right to say less interactive, but it's just it takes that edge away when people are constantly filling up their health meters because they're also trying to collect the cards, which I, I don't like. I, I'm not a, not a huge fan. To me, there's some cards in the deck that kind of do that as well. Like they make the game last a bit longer without any much benefit. Like um, 
it has a child which like sort of revives a monster after it dies and it, it, it revives again and there's a couple there's a few cards that basically just remove victory points from other monsters so it just extends the length of the game do you think the uh do you think those cards have a similar kind of impact to the sort of power cards do you, do you play with them or without them yeah i i don't take anything out of the deck i mean you're you're absolutely right about it has a child if i was going to take a card out of the deck i guess i guess i might think of that one but it doesn't come up that often and even if it does some buy it in terms of the cards that take the points out of the game i'm gonna have to jump the gun a little bit and talk about the mechanics because i think a slight problem with king of tokyo is that it favours death over victory points as a win sure. condition. Yeah, um, that's true. And so generally, yeah, I, I'm not sure that those are great um, because it makes it even less likely to win by points and it seems unnecessarily vindictive in a game that otherwise has a very clever mechanic to even out the pain. Sure. Um, we'll absolutely come to that yourself and yourself nate do you play with power up but i own it i actually reviewed it back in the you know in the days of your 2012 2013 whenever it came out and i remember liking it a lot at the time but as you know i've kept on playing the game and i have not played with power up i don't think since 2014 <laughs> probably i i i echo what matt says and i think it's it again i don't want to we don't want to go too much into the mechanics of the game but the hearts are kind of a thing because not only are people healing a whole lot to get the power cards but the other issue of that is that the the hearts are now usable by the guy in tokyo whoever's in tokyo sure um, and you and he can still use them to get power cards. And for every heart you roll, that's one attack you didn't roll. Yeah. And I think that that's again, the yeah. yeah, it just by its very nature, it's removing the opportunity for aggression. And this is just it's kind of meant to be an aggressive game. And and the thing is, the difference between Ian, you were talking about the cards in the deck that are in the base game and these power cards that are character specific. The difference is the cards in the deck you don't get just by rolling. True. You don't just get them as a result of what how the dice come up. You get them by kind of saving up for them, or uh, you know, there's a there's a bigger opportunity cost to get it, and um, I think because of that, that that mitigates a lot of the maybe more wobbly cards that I, I I've never let me put it this way I've never had a game that I thought was derailed by one of the cards. I kind of like it has a child just because everyone knows it's out there. And if it's out there, someone can pay the two energy to get rid of the cards, which is, again, we'll talk about that later. But uh, yeah, the King of Tokyo is just kind of a very, it's a very uh, boiled down design. It feels like it doesn't have really any extraneous bits on it. And every expansion element you add yeah. is another extraneous bit. And it just kind of, it, it just, yeah, there's something kind of alchemical happening almost in the game. And if you add more stuff, it just kind of throws off the formula. The biggest, the biggest legacy, uh, the power up has, I, I don't know what the new printing, but the current, the old printing had Panda Kai as one of the, as a new monster and Panda Kai is significant because it's my eldest son's favorite one. So whenever we play King of Tokyo, he's always Panda Kai. That's so I always use power up if that's the <laughs> if that's the threshold. <laughs> I don't use the power cards, but I use Panda Kai. Fair enough. 
So there's been a bunch of other expansions over the years. There's Halloween, which introduced some new monsters, a big set of orange dice, introduced costumes, which we'll talk about later as a mechanic. There's been a bunch of promo cards over the years. Obviously, there's been like uh, I, I think there is there's been promos at, at Essen for Essen specific monsters and very sort of monster packs you can buy over the years as well. I don't know the full list of them. There's a lot. Uh, I believe there was a, eventually a specific King Kong one as well. Because in the original game, they have the king, who is definitely not King Kong, honest governor, for copyright reasons. But they did eventually have a King Kong pack, if I remember rightly. When others. the game originally came out, there was... A, a, I don't know what's happened to these since, but there was a set of 15 promo cards that you can buy. Uh, you could buy as, as a, like a, a, a complete set i don't know if where they came from originally whether they came out individually or where that came from but i um I, they were in that first game that i played uh, and i just fell in love with them and i just i really like the i think they're really quite they're not necessary okay there's, there's i don't know if there's such a thing of as a necessary not. expansion but of course they just add to the theme of the cards that are originally there. They're just variations on that. But I remember them particularly because I remember having a couple of them that came from the expansion deck and thinking, I can't possibly play without these because they're so representative of the theme of the game and the spirit of the game. So I remember I had throw a tanker, which is just such a, it's just such a great concept. You pick up a tanker and throw it at one of your opponents. All it does mechanically um, is if you do at least three damage, you gain... Uh, extra points um but that's just joyous because you can just imagine this your huge monster your great cyber bunny levering an oil tanker out of the harbor and chucking it across the bay at king kong yeah sorry not king kong for copyright reasons um and the it encourages to roll claws right which is what it's all about it's it's about getting in there getting stuck in getting doing the damage and and it it's just a a lovely encapsulation of what the game is all about and the other one i bought in that game which I which always stuck with me is reflective hide, uh, which is a particularly pleasurable one because anybody that hurts you gets hurt in turn, and and how anybody can resist that in a game like this is beyond me. <laughs> yeah, that sounds good. Yeah, the um, I can't think of the right word. Not deja vu. You know that uh, Schadenfreude. That's it. Yeah, uh, is is just is just wonderful. And um, so I just think they're, of course, not necessary, but they're just really good additions to the original game yeah no extra rules wait so there's a there's another version uh called king of new york which i've personally never played it added a, a different board you could stomp around new york you could break down buildings military are involved there are a bunch of new mechanics in there there's then a second printing of the game uh, which had obviously the same rules some new characters cyber bunny was removed for unspecified copyright reasons according to the wiki yet it has returned in the dark version which came out in 2021 alongside the king of tokyo big box which basically had everything i think pretty much from previous versions bunches of new bunches of all, all the monsters that have been released over the years cards etc in a huge big box as is a common thing for companies to do these days when a game has been around for so long and then they teased at Essen 2021 some sort of island variant. That was all that was known about it. Until basically today, we are recording on the 30th of August 2022. And they have announced uh, that island version is a co-op version of King of Tokyo. Where you are... Well, we've only got a picture to go on at the moment. It got, just got pushed out today. We don't have much more information 
other than that it's a one to five player game and you are monsters taking on even bigger monsters around a sort of volcanic island and the volcano is a dice tower of some description it looks quite different to king of tokyo but i'm kind of up for a co-op version of king of tokyo don't know about you gents it's it's not a dice tower. I don't think it's a it's a cube scattering mechanic. There, ah, there was something okay. like this in in the loop. I don't know if any of you ever played the loop, a co op game. No, I haven't. No, I've heard played, yeah. played Wallenstein, and they use that in Wallenstein. No, this, is, this is different. This this is a little oh, bit it's different. different. Yeah, a little oh. bit. A little, the concept's the same. Wallenstein has the cube tower, which retains cubes, which is another mechanic, funnily enough, actually, which I think is underused, um, much like oh, the rerolling so the art. I, I like a cube tower. I was playing a, a demo of a game called Harrow County, um, which is coming out in a couple of years' time uh, earlier today, which is uh, uses the cube tower. They're nice. But this is a little bit different. Rather than trapping cubes in the tower, the idea of these things is it swizzles around and comes out of a random hole, comes out of a random place. Um, I think that's what's going to happen. Oh yeah, okay. like, you know, in in uh, in this island version of of King of Tokyo. As far as a um, a co-op version of the game goes, I think it stinks. Um, I think we have far too many co-op games, and I think King of Tokyo is all about rolling those claws and getting stuck into other players, and an absolutely boo thumbs down to this <laughs> sanitized family you know uh, combat light version uh, of one of the most interactively vicious games that i've enjoyed of the past 15 20 years well before we move on to talking about our own impressions of the game and i think you can tell what matt's going to say um uh, what was the sort of impact at the time uh, of King of Tokyo? Again, I, I I bought it pretty close to its sort of. Oh, I bought the second edition, so pretty close to its original release. But I wasn't really a critic or anything like that at the time. So, for you guys, what, what was the sort of like sort of critical impact of King of Tokyo around that time, and and sort of impact on the industry? I'm not sure what impact we could say it had on the industry besides just being a really big success. The kind of success where you can eventually release a big box with all the expansions, which, you know, there's no, no game has ever had a big box that actually needed one. <laughs> you know, like <laughs> if you, if, if you play like Carcassonne in its big box form, which I don't think even is in print anymore, you play it with all the expansions. It's going to be just an awful game, an awful game. <laughs> if you play King of Tokyo, I, I'm guessing it might move a little smoother than that, but still like, you don't want to play that. Like you really, I, I, I cannot emphasize enough. You, if you like Power Up, great. If you like one of the other characters, that's that's great. But you really only need one box. Uh, and I can't speak to King of New York. My son has played it and was pretty lukewarm on it. But I've not played it. I couldn't say anything about it. Um, co-op version, yeah, sure. I'll probably never play it. But it looks nice. I hope people enjoy it when they get it. So... We'll see. I, I, I think its impact would only... I, I think the only thing I remember at the time being there's two things that stood out to me, and I can't... You know, I don't know if this is far-reaching for anybody else, but the first one is this was the first time I was in a very gamer's game kind of place around 2011, 2012, and I've gotten much more... I, I've As I've gotten older, I've come to really appreciate shorter, quicker, simpler games because they fit into my life a lot better than than the bigger, longer ones do. But King of Tokyo was a real, like, it just, it, it's, it, it was, it's fun was obvious right away in a way that made it, um, 
you don't have gateway games like this very often. And I hate, I, I don't really like to use the term gateway game because it is, I mean, I get why we use it, but it, it, it wasn't just a gateway for me. It was like, oh, hey, we can play this a couple times instead of playing a two hour game or something like that. And that's, it takes a pretty special game of this weight. The other thing is, Matt talked about the, we really hadn't seen that Yahtzee kind of mechanic and that's true. And I think one of the things that really, I, I think it reminded people why dice can be really fun. And that's just anecdotal. I don't know if that's actually what it, you know, the impact that it had. But a lot of times we'd see dice used up before this, you would see them used uh, games like Kingsburg or um, yeah. uh, Alien Frontiers. Is that, is that the one I'm thinking yeah. of that used the worker yeah. placement dice? Those are, th- those are okay. I like Alien Frontier. I haven't played either one in probably a decade. <laughs> But I, they're, they're both fine games. Back. Yeah, they're, they're, they're fine games, but they're trying to manage dice. And I touched on this a little bit earlier where they're, they're trying to reduce the, the swinginess that is natural with dice. And King of Tokyo just goes the opposite way. It just leans into it and says, no, the swinginess is the point. Yeah, it pushes it push the swing even harder. Yeah, and it, and it understands the drama of a really fun dice roll. And I, I think that's something that before King of Tokyo, I think that was kind of not well appreciated. That's people who play games like Dungeon Quest knew that. <laughs> people who'd done a lot of role playing knew that. But hobbyist board gamers at the time really weren't in that place. And so I think King of Tokyo made it made it clear that yeah, dice can be a really good way to inject drama and to uh, just you know make people stand up and cheer or like throw their head back and groan or something like that. So the, the, that's anecdotal. Uh, but I think it is definitely a, an impact I saw. I, I think that's a really good point, actually. It, it arrived at a time when I think mainstream, not mainstream, when hobby board gaming was drifting quite hard into the more mechanically deep, strategically deep design choices and stuff older stuff that was more dice reliant was becoming increasingly sidelined to war gamers to role players almost like a separate hobby and i think king of tokyo reminded everybody that there is enormous value and enormous fun uh, in having short exciting games um, that are perhaps a bit light on strategy but are big on drama so you mentioned earlier, Nate, that it was sort of hard to find a copy of King of Tokyo at the time. I mean, I, I, I never really saw that, but uh, what do you think led to that? What, what were the problems around sort of supply at the time? Uh, I, well, I think, first of all, it, is, it was a new publisher, someone who, hadn't, who was publishing their first game, and it was a really big hit. But I remember at the time, like I said, I came home and I looked at my local game store for a hobby, for, for a copy, excuse me, and there wasn't one. And I asked, well, when's it going to be in? And they said, oh, it should be in whatever time, a month or two. And so I placed a pre-order and it took longer. And I think part of the reason the gap there was, was the, the new dice that Matt mentioned earlier. Because when that second printing came out, yeah, they didn't do the screen printing anymore. The dice are embossed and hey, it worked because it's 10 years later and I can still see all the numerals on here. So it was, it was a sort of game that that's, that's a good sign. When a simple, straightforward game like that is just hard to find, that usually is an indication that it's a big deal. The gap in terms of picking up a, a second printing copy, because I can't remember when I eventually got my copy, um, but 
it would have been 2013, 2014. And the interesting thing about that is that my eldest daughter would have been about four at that point. And she was capable of playing King of Tokyo because I can remember playing it with her and her enjoying, you know, the chunky monsters and the cool dice. Uh, and she couldn't really get the cards, but that doesn't matter. She still had a great time rolling the dice, trying to get the triples uh, and kicking my uh, cybernetic rabbit ears out of Tokyo whenever she got the opportunity. Yeah, it was it was the first game I taught to my kids too. Yeah, I played with a, a friend's kid, a friend's kid recently with King of Tokyo, went around to play some games and King of Tokyo was a, a very big hit. Because yeah, it's just... It's just a beautiful looking thing. I mean, that, that was my impression when I first when I when I first picked up. But let, let's use the opportunity to go into that sort of our own impressions of the game. For me, it was like it was like I said earlier. It's one of the games that introduced me to the modern what the modern hobby could be, and I remember it really standing out on the shelves of my local game shop because it's got such. It's got such a cartoony kind of vibrant art style to it, and it's just got all these lovely chunky kind of components. Uh, I, I think I eventually reviewed it a few years ago because I realized I hadn't. But yeah, it's just it's just this beautiful sort of controlled chaos. I, I, I love that sort of feel to it. Like, yeah, you're rolling dice, and yeah, of course, there's some a lot of randomness in there and a lot of, a lot of possibility of the dice going against you. But I don't think you ever feel out of control with King of Tokyo. There's always that. There's always that possibility of a comeback, and there's some beautiful mechanics that allows you to mitigate that that sort of chaos a little bit and control it a little bit, like the the ability to sort of push someone into Tokyo so they get all get they get piled on. For instance, is fantastic. Just that little touch of like that that little touch of tactical play in there, which is just brilliant. What do you what, what do you think about that mechanic, guys? The the one that allows you to sort of pull people in and out of Tokyo pretty much at, at will. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's great. I, 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 the game essentially, partly because of that mechanic, boils down to shepherding your health well. Mm. Um, because if, as I discovered when we played this together on BGA, if you uh, push it a bit too long in Tokyo, it's very easy <laughs> uh, to come out with, with one less heart or whatever that you need to stay in the game. And that, that constant attraction of, of wanting to be in Tokyo, but it being a double-edged sword is, is, is just joyous. Um, and it's joyous particularly because I think it is a... One of the things that I really love about King of Tokyo, which I alluded to earlier, is the way that it shares the pain. It's a very vindictive game, in actual fact, but it never feels it. You never feel, yeah. very rarely, maybe the odd card or two, it's very rare that you feel that you're actually being put upon by other players um, because of the way that you can be pushed out and in, into Tokyo by forces beyond your control because of the way that when you're inside it, you're damaging everybody, then everyone is damaging you. You know, you don't get to particularly pick on individual players in the same way. Um, or you do, but it's not obvious. So you don't feel that resentment. And I think yeah. really the joy of King of Tokyo can be encapsulated really rather well by that game that we played in that exact moment when I realized that I'd left it a turn too long in Tokyo and didn't have enough hearts left. And Nate, I can't remember, you rolled like four or five claws. <laughs> um, 
and you immediately said what I think all three of us were thinking, which is, my God, now I remember why we play this game. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and and it yeah. is just that the joyous swing of fortune of going, oh, yeah. no, it's turned too late, and going, oh, yeah, I've rolled five claws, and just having that partial control, but always hoping that extra triple, that extra symbol to come up that you want um, at the end of your turn. Uh, it's just such a lovely, lovely balance of ideas to create an interactive game that never feels like it's punishing you particularly. I mean, for me, like one of my one of my most hated mechanics is player elimination. I'm not a fan because it's the exact opposite of what I want to be doing. Obviously, I want to be sitting around and playing a game with folks. So, if you get eliminated early, then I'm just sitting around and watching folk play. But I kind of don't mind it with King Tokyo, partly because it is a relatively short game. It's sort of like, even with a large player count, you're sort of talking maybe what, half an hour kind of tops, half an hour, 45 minutes, maybe. But there's a, there's a sort of spectacle to King of Tokyo, I think, that like you are, when other people are rolling dice, you are invested in it and you are watching what they do and seeing the choices and changes they make. And there's there's that sort of sucked in moment of breath every time they roll dice. Like, will will I be able to stay in Tokyo? Like, like you were saying, Matt, like, will I be able to stay in Tokyo around? Have I guessed correctly how many, how many, how many, how much damage I'm going to take in the next three turns? I, th- I think there's a, a there's a spectacle to it, and it looks brilliant on the table. And you get, when you're playing it at like a convention or something like that, people will come and watch. That that's my experience of it anyway, because it's just it's just a cool thing to watch, King of Tokyo. I don't know why it is, but there's a magic there that I don't fully understand. I, I think that's a really interesting point because I will just, before we go to Nate, just jump in again and just mention, you say about the cartoon art and, and my immediate thing when you said that popped into my head is Smash Up, right? So Smash yeah. Up is another game with full of cartoon art. But, and I don't mean to be overly critical, Smash Up is fine, but the cartoon art looks cheap and nasty. It looks it looks yeah. child and, and, uh, and kind of a bit, generic whereas king of tokyo doesn't it does as you say look vibrant and exciting and i don't know enough about graphic design to tell you why but it just has that magic ingredient visually um yeah and- it's got a charm to it like there's yes. like cards like uh omnivore where the there's a big monster like just sort of sort of mouthing on a building chewing on a building and um camouflage is a personal favorite where there's a mo- an obvious monster but it's changed its color to be the like the skyscrapers beside it so it's an, it's obviously there, but it thinks it's camouflaged. There's there's almost a little story in each card, which is really really lovely. Yeah, this is this is one. If if I were if I were to make a list of let's say five games that I think literally everyone should try out, and I mean people who don't really like games ought to try them. King of Tokyo, I think, would make that list because it's it's so. Yeah, it just it, it gets so much right. And it's not this it, it's it's really great because you can look at like the the zoomed in mechanical level and you can see, hey, it's not like this flawless mathematically engineered game, but it just feels right. All the different components of it just have the you, you can tell it's a it's a product of someone who's designed a lot of stuff. Right? Because you know, there's that whole balance of I'm I'm in Tokyo. I do get more points than everybody else. I have this steady stream of points, but I can't heal. Uh, and that's just such a really tempting trade-off. There's that thing at the beginning, and especially with like five or six people where no one wants to go into Tokyo. 
Everyone's like trying. Yeah, they're they're re-rolling attacks so they don't end up in there. And as soon as someone like they'll roll it on their third, like, oh man, I rolled a I rolled one attack, and someone's like, all right, see ya, I'm out of here. Hop, I'm hopping in. You know, and now you got to hop into Tokyo, and just those kind of things are so wonderful. And they're all those moments where you have like, okay, I have six health. There's no way they could roll six attacks, and somehow. <laughs> Somehow they roll six attacks and you're just like, how could this have happened to me? How could this have happened? And there's so many moments like that, that it, you know, so you can appreciate the game on the design level, or you can appreciate it just on this visceral, this is very fun kind of level. And the, the production does so much for that. We were playing it on, on board game arena and it, we had a lot of fun, but there's just something about those big fat dice like they just they yeah. clatter on the table. They just like I'm there. I remember when my kids started playing, they couldn't get their hands around them. <laughs> you know, <laughs> it just it felt like the, the physicality of it is really good. And the illustrations, you know, ladies and gentlemen, if you've never seen this game in person, the characters don't have special powers when you, you know, when, at least if you're, if you're playing without power up, they're just that all their personality is all visual. But when you look at them, you have you, you connect with them as separate characters. Like what Matt said, he always wants to be Cyber Bunny. I've always been like a fan of Alienoid myself. That's my avatar on board game board game arena is Alienoid because he's my guy. Like, and I can't <laughs> tell you why. It's just it, there's just that much personality. I think the closest a game that came out around the same time is Small World, and Small World I think has some of the similar kind of qualities to it in terms of art but small world doesn't get you nearly as attached to the artwork as king of tokyo does so yeah it's it's a fantastic game uh and it's it's a really it's very widely accessible and i i, th I think also ian you pointed out about the artwork or about the production it's a really nice production with loads of character but it's mm. not an opulent production this is yeah. still one of the last board games were in the u.s you can find it for under 50 bucks that's that's a pretty rare thing anymore but king of tokyo it's it's a not spartan but it, it has everything it needs to have but it's just enough and it all looks terrific and i know i'm talking about the physical production a lot but you know board games are a physical product we are playing with yeah. toys here and it's a nice toy yeah you can get for about 30 quid in the uk and i, I can just imagine like I can just imagine people want, or some people wanting like miniatures or something like that for the monsters instead. You know, like sort of a big chunky miniature. But but like the, the standees are so they're so big and vibrant and cool looking, and and they also like you know fit in a box really much easier. So the, the King Tug is quite a small box in terms of modern board gaming. But there's just there's just so much in there and a lot of re replayability. The power the uh, there's obviously a deck of powers as well, which is where a lot of Richard Garfield's sort of background and magic and netrunner comes in. There's a lot of interesting cards in there, and there's a sort of there's a sort of another sort of tactical edge there. Where as cards come out, you can build up energy from the dice you're rolling. You can buy cards that alter your monster and effectively almost tell a little story as to what they're up to and how they're evolving and mutating over the course of a game. But there's also an option to sort of wipe those cards and bring out new ones. So if you can see someone else is wanting to get something, you can sort of hedge them off of the past. So there's again, there's a little sort of tactical bite there, not too much. But just enough to give a little bit of an interesting choice there each turn as to, well, do I spend this two energy now to make sure Nate doesn't get that, or do I 
save up for next turn to get get myself something. Do you, do you guys ever play without the cards at all? If you're if you're teaching it, or do you just go straight in? I would only play without the cards if I was uh, playing with a small child. Um, I love the cards. I think they're great. Yeah, there, there's so much in those cards. Not only do they add some narrative, uh, as you've said, mm-hmm. but um, waiting for them, waiting to see what's going to come out, waiting to see whether you get to buy what you want and, and or yeah. whether a card that you don't want somebody else to have goes to them is like the anticipation of waiting for your turn writ large. It has multiple layers of anticipation, of enjoying enjoyable anticipation this game. Uh, and the cards are a, a key part of that. And I think one thing that occurred to me, there are some cards which are much more interesting and engaging than others. Just to go back to Reflective Hide, that, that's potentially a game-changing card. I know it's from the, the promo set. Extra Head, there's another one. There's another really exciting, game-changing card that has a, yeah. a big if swing effect. And then against that, you've got ones that just say, oh, here's a couple of extra points. Or, oh, here's a couple of extra health. And I was kind of thinking to myself, why don't you just take out those less boring cards? And then I thought, well, actually waiting to see if a cool card is going to come up is yet another layer of the anticipation this game gets right. It's just got you the whole time hooked into waiting to see when your turns are going to come around, what the dice are going to be like, and then wider out what the cards are going to be like, what cards you're going to get, and then wider out again whether or not the really cool cards are going to come out. So it's just, it's almost an early example of FOMO marketing (laughs) in a game. (laughs) You're just constantly waiting to see or worrying about what you're going to miss out on. So I think if it just had nothing but the big effect cards it would somehow be less of a game weirdly yeah you need that contrast there i think otherwise it would actually maybe even be too swingy and some of those some of those little cards oh there's one that i i still have never seen at work but one day i will and i can't remember what it's called uh what the card is called but it costs one and you get like nine points if you roll one of every die face by the end of your turn and that's like like, oh man, I can't resist that. Like, it's probably yeah. never going to work. I've, but I've I'll spend. I bought that a few times for sure. I never made it work. <laughs> yeah, but but someday, someday it might work. And you just you want to you want to lean into that kind of stuff. The only criticism I would have with the cards is there's two or three of them that involve the use of extra tokens that come in the game, and those always feel like they just need one extra explanation on how they work. Uh, because the text is usually uh, poison spit is one of them. It's a cool card. It does yeah. neat stuff, but it's got a lot of tiny text on it. It's got this pile of tokens. Someone buys it like, Oh, okay. So I'm doing this now. I, I would have maybe, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm not a published game designer. I would have said, let's see if we can do this without extra tokens. Yeah. But, but then I actually do like those cards a lot. So what do I know? Uh, to to speak well we've sort of touched on it there to speak about sort of criticisms of the game a little bit matt you were saying earlier that you find find that it tends to evolve into king of the hill over the sort of point future point potential of the of the game i find that changes depending on the number of players i don't know what your experience of that is like um of course it does because more players means more damage um but i think even with small because let's face it while you can play King of Tokyo with two players, um, it is a more fun game with more players. Six, seven, maybe a bit too many. It's still great fun, as we've said. But, you know, you, your sweet spot's probably around four or five. And 
even at lower player counts. I still think that's probably broadly true. I still think probably uh, more games end due to somebody dying than they do collecting the 20 points. To get the 20 points, I mean, I have, I've seen it done many times. I've played this game dozens of times. It's, it's oh, worth yeah, mentioning that. And I've played them like face-to-face. I didn't even know it was on BGA until we played it together. And <laughs> so this is, this is one of the most, if not the most, face-to-face played game that I own. I think that's the same for me, yeah. I have seen wins a number of times on points, but normally it's because partly luck because somebody pulled out several three-point rolls in a row because somebody got just the right number of cubes at the right time to buy a card and because somebody avoided rolling the claws and never ended up in tokyo you know it's weird that actually you 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 are probably more likely to win points if you don't get points from tokyo strangely but uh i i've always felt that is a minor weakness in the game um and maybe I've never tried it, but maybe just a house rule to give away another point from Tokyo. I, I don't know, or just up slightly the number of points you get from cards um, or from triples. I don't know. But it's just that little bit harder to win via points than it is via just being the last monster standing and killing everybody else. But that said, much as I like multiple routes to victory, I also like raising everybody else's game to the ground and then stamping on the ashes and laughing uproariously. So perhaps it isn't that big of a criticism. Yeah, I think it gives the game a little edge because if it was just King of the Hill, that would that would obviously just be the focus. It'd just be bashing. And having those virtue points in there, which, because it's a dice roller, kind of randomly turn up and push you up the way and then you're like, oh, I'm at 10. I wonder if I can get some more. It gives you that extra sort of like, there's another choice in there. It's, which is kind of interesting. It sort of like pushes you away from the fight for a second and like says, Hey, maybe you can go a different route. And then you're waiting for cards to come up and seeing if you can seeing if you can avoid the battle a little bit as you step back and try and maybe buy some cards to get, get there. It's just another, another little way of, of looking at the game, which is nice and easy to understand as well. Yeah. I, I, I don't mind the way the, the balance between the two types of victory. It's probably, two to one for me winning with uh winning by being the last monster standing versus uh winning via points it you know i i i think my my biggest criticisms about king of tokyo almost all boil down to those little points of friction that can just come up in the game like it's i i always have to take great pains to explain that when you roll three of a certain number you don't get that many points. Like you, if you roll three threes, you don't get nine points. You only get three points. And that's not like, that's not hard to understand, but it's just a, it's just like this little edge that I don't think could really be sanded down anymore. Like the balance feels right. But I just, that kind of stuff drives me crazy when you're like, now remember. And then it's like, if you roll an extra one, each of those are worth one. And that's just a little, man, that kind of stuff just can niggle at me if I think about it too long. But it's it's really not a deal breaker at all. Uh, I, I think I, I once heard someone say they didn't like having Tokyo Bay, which for, you know, listeners at home, Tokyo Bay, if you're playing with five or six people, is a second spot in Tokyo. So there's two people in Tokyo at any one time. I mean, maybe. I, I don't know. I've never tried I, without it I really like when it. I have that many yeah. yeah, when I have that many players, I, I can't imagine having that strong an opinion on it. <laughs> Frankly, <laughs> I have a lot of opinions on a lot of things, but not on that. And I think that's really my my, my big issue. I, I, because it's such a straightforward game, the parts that aren't maybe as straightforward as they could be just always kind of gnaw at me. 
when I'm teaching King of Tokyo, that's definitely the hardest part to teach is, okay, okay so you roll three threes, those were our three points. And then every three you roll after that is actually worth one point. That, that, that little bit of the explanation is always, that's the hardest thing to do, for sure. I think we all generally, we generally love this game, right? The three of us are, are big fans of King of Tokyo. What do you think has been the influence on the modern era for, for King of Tokyo? I mean, King of Tokyo is still around. Had, like say, we had, had a big box last year. The core game is still widely available in all sorts of places. Well, what's, what's been the influence of King of Tokyo on board games in the last sort of two, three years? I think you can't, you have to make some kind of link with the roll and write craze. Now, King of Tokyo definitely didn't start that. Um, it was clearly Ganshon Clever um, that, that really brought that out into the wider consciousness. But I think King of Tokyo through the intervening decade has been the torchbearer for that style of game. It's kept that light alive, if you like. Um, while it's not a roll and write, it has a lot in common with roll and writes, not just the, the keeping dice and, and re-rolling some of the mechanic, but just that general sense of controlled chaos, that general sense of a short, fun, dramatic game where you are leveraging the dice to get the effects that you want. And King of Tokyo is a lot more interactive and probably more chaotic than most Roland Wrights, but it's hard to think of many games in the that were in that style. And I, I don't imagine whoever designed Ganshon Clever, um, I should probably know off the top of my head and I don't, was kind of thinking about King of Tokyo when they made it. But I think King of Tokyo ensured that it was in the wider hobby consciousness for yourself Nate, what do you think of influences on the modern era for king of tokyo I'm, I'm a little bit at a loss here just just because king of tokyo makes it look easy and even as its own expansions have shown it's not easy this is the you know this is the product of one of the most influential game designers ever like if you were if you were to make a list of five tabletop game designers richard garfield would be one would i mean you know who are the most influential had the most impact not just on the hobby but on popular culture richard garfield knows what he's doing and, and, in, it's, and in terms of garfield it also industry like he basically made a whole new genre yeah i mean he's he he's a pro he knows what he's doing and i think and i don't say that to mean like no one else can ever touch it but just that like i said the expansion show it's an easy uh thing to mess up as well now i i do agree with matt the the roll and write craze that we saw come about five six years later you know if not far, if not further along that that feels like it if not a direct uh if if not directly influenced by king of tokyo at the very least they are now aware of that tradition. And uh, that was something that's a, that's one of the most peculiar things of the last five, six years that we've seen has just been how Roland rights became this really big deal uh, <laughs> after not being a big deal for so long. And I don't know if I'd lay that at King of Tokyo's feet, but like, like you said, like Matt said, it, it kept the, it kept the flame burning, you know, As, aside from the obvious influence, which is just that the game has sold so many copies it's everywhere. You can buy it, you know, in the US, you can buy it at Target. I don't know what the equivalent department store that's everywhere in the UK would be, but my guess is you can probably buy it there too, just because that's, that's a game that's 
bigger than the hobby. That's uh, that's the kind of game that people who only own one or two games, they own Ticket to Ride, they own Catan, and they own King of Tokyo. It's one of those games. And that's, uh, I mean, that's an, that's an influence that hobbyists don't see, but that is probably, will be more far-reaching 10, 20, 30 years from now. I think it's really quite interesting to contrast what you were saying there about the cleverness uh, and tightness of Richard Garfield's design here with Roland Wrights. Because when you step away from King of Tokyo, in actual fact, it's, it's really interesting. It's really easy to see how many little things it gets right. I talked before about the circles of anticipation. We've talked already about the way it's visually impressive without packing tons of stuff in the box to, to keep it cheap. It's got a lovely balance, which we haven't talked quite as much about because it's kind of the core of the game of strategy and luck. Um, and the cards bring narrative into it. It's got little snippets of everything just beautifully integrated together with very little rules overhead, very little playtime, and yet it can speak to all sorts of different kinds of gamers. It really is a quite fantastically integrated little package. But it doesn't seem that way, necessarily. It doesn't seem a beautifully refined game. But contrast that with, with the Roland Wright craze, which now I... There are lots of good roll and write games. This is not a blanket coverage, but like a lot of things that where there's lots of designers jumping on a bandwagon, I think you saw the same thing when you first got um, cooperative games out in the wake of Pandemic, which is for another episode. But there's a lot of dross. A lot of people push a lot of very mediocre games out to market very quickly. And I just think it, it stands to contrast that kind of how easy it is to get um, a game wrong with how effortless King of Tokyo seems, but in fact it is very cleverly refined when you dig into it, and that's really the secret of its longevity, I think. Um, it is a, it's an all-time top 20 game for me, certainly. Yeah, I guess that's one of the reasons that we haven't seen many maybe direct influences in the modern era is because it's still around, because it's still such a big evergreen title. How do you assail that? It is literally the king of itself. It is, it, it's the king of that sort of genre, that sort of Yahtzee kind of controlled chaos kind of thing. It's still there. Of Tokyo. Of Tokyo. Indeed. <laughs> yeah. It, it's, just, it's just a fantastic game. It's still about, it's cheap to buy and yeah, it, like like say Matt, it's just called like, when you come away from it and think about it, you're like, oh yeah, it gets that right and it gets that right, and it doesn't do too much of this or too little of that. It's just, it just there's just a perfect sort of line through it that it walks very very carefully. So yeah, King of Tokyo, King of itself, King of all sort of like dice rolling chaotic games. It's still massively available. It's available pretty much everywhere for very little money in terms of modern board gaming. It's fantastic. We all love it. Any sort of final thoughts, gents? I think it's worth just dabbing in there quickly that it's kind of a great title to highlight why we're doing this. Because you say it's evergreen, you say it's still available, and it is. It is all of those things. Is it still enjoyable? Yes, we've all agreed that it is. But people don't talk about it anymore. And that's a bit sad. You know, this is a game... Yeah. It made me, us doing this podcast, uh, we all suddenly remember what a great game it was. I've pulled it out again to play with my kids and we've had a great time. And it's re-highlighting games like King of Tokyo in the wider interest, which is why I wanted to sit down with you guys and do this. Yeah. For yourself, Nate? 
Yeah, I, I think I've, I've moved a whole lot and I've always thought about if I had to boil down my collection to like 10 games, 20 games, something like that, what games would make the cut? And, you know, the list changes every time, maybe apart from one, one or two specific titles. But King of Tokyo is always right there because I can just play it anywhere. It, it like there's no there, there's never been a limit to who I've been able to play it with. Now I want Pocket King of Tokyo. <laughs> it just occurred to me, like a little version of it with like nice little standees and maybe smaller dice. I can literally put it in my pocket. That's what I want. It, it needs to be like a silver line box, like what Fantasy Flight used to make those yeah. silver line boxes. Yeah, One of those. Yeah. Make, with a magnetic closure, preferably. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Magnetic closure. I'd buy that. <laughs> I'll take that over the co-op version. <laughs> I'm, I'm interested in the co-op version, but yeah, I, I agree that maybe it sort of loses a little bit of the spirit of the game. Thanks very much for listening. Editing for the cast was done by me, Ian McAllister. The music for the cast was provided by my brother-in-law, David Oliver, with my friend, Alistair McLeod. Our logo was created by Rachel Wines Thrower. If you like what you've listened to, then the best way to help us out is by telling your friends about us and leave us a review and rating on your podcast host of choice. You'll also find the cast on thecultoftheold.com, where you can find writing about older games. You can follow the hosts on Twitter. I'm at the Giant Brain. Matt is at Matt Thra, that's M-A-T-T-T-H-R. Nate is at Sanaldefanso, that's S-A-N-I-L-D-E-F-A-N-S-O. You can come and chat to the team and fellow game enthusiasts on our Discord, and there'll be an invite to that in the show notes. If you'd like to support us financially, you can do so through our Ko-Fi, and I'll put a link to that as well. You can send the cast an email about any of the games we covered, should cover, or anything else really, at cultoftheolduk at gmail.com. Bye for now.